Chris Garcia. I am, in fact, Chris Garcia. Last time we talked about World War II. One of the things that happened both prior and during World War II that we mentioned last time a little bit was the Atanasov Berry Computer, the ABC it's often referred to as. And John Vinton Atanasov, or Adnasov, depends on who you talk to, uh, was the principal designer and worked with graduate student Clifford Berry to develop it. Now, the concept for it and the design began in 1937. So this is way, way back. And it took nearly five years to get it developed to the point where a prototype could be made. And it wasn't a general purpose computer. This is one of the interesting issues with it. It was designed to specifically solve systems of linear equations. And it ran in 1942. Now, that success is very important because if you develop a machine but it doesn't actually run, it can't really be seen as being, one, successful, of course, but two, as having proven that the system worked. And without that evidentiary work, it becomes like Babbage's machine. An interesting side note. Now, this was a decimal machine, and that's key as opposed to binary, even though it used vacuum tubes, roughly 300. Now, only one was ever made, but it had a neat memory type, and we're going to have a whole episode about uh, various early memory forms, and this was a capacitor drum. Basically, it's a drum with a whole bunch of capacitors around it that could store the bits, and there were 3,000 total bits in the memory. That's not bad, actually, if you think about it. Now, you had... Input through punch cards, typical IBM cards. And that's a very, very important sense. Now, this computer had some interesting pieces to it. But really, the only thing that is important to think about it is that it is legally considered the first computer in America. Now, let me get into this a bit. Now, after developing it in 37 and 38, he sort of was thinking on a long nighttime drive that about computing concepts, and this one came to him, doing binary arithmetic, which is important. We'll get more into that later also. But over the course of this next period, he came up with the logic design to make it happen. And he spent more than what today would be almost 100 grand on it. Now, they built it in the physics building at Iowa State University, very, at that point, Iowa State College. And they did actually do some demonstrations. And they first demonstrated individual parts like an 11-tube prototype board, which is, you know, the base level. But it had all sorts of pieces to it. It wasn't just a vacuum tube machine. They had uh, dual triode vacuum tubes, and they had uh, thyriotrons, and it had tons of wire, and it was big. It's the size of a very large desk. But it wasn't programmable. You had a series of problems you could run, and that was it. So in that sense, you had a lot of machines that were more advanced than it, including Zuza's works, in roughly the same time. Now, the use of capacitors for the memory was also very important. It was, an again, it's an electrical means for storage instead of electromechanical or strictly mechanical. Very key. And it was a system called regenerative capacitor memory. So each drum had 1,600 capacitors, and they rotated on one shaft, and a pass was one second. And so they sort of had these, what they called bands, and they were 50, 50 bits, basically, is the best way to look at it. Each one was holding, holding one bit, and they were in so these bands, 32 of them. Now, the idea of solving systems of simultaneous linear equations, this could actually have up to 29 equations running at a time. Uh, 
it would really tax the machine, but that was sort of the goal of these machines. A lot of these early machines were not necessarily doing big, you know, workhorse stuff. They were often being used just to test out what the capabilities are. Where was the horizon? But this is where it gets interesting. In 1947, the developers of ENIAC, J. Presper Eckert and John Mockley, filed a patent on a digital computing device, in this case, ENIAC. And apparently when at NASA found out, he was furious because the ABC had been seen by Mockley in June of 1941, and another fellow named uh, Isaac Auerbach, who was a student of Mockley. And, Mo and Auerbach said that the work that Mockley did on ENIAC actually was influenced by the ABC's design. That's very important to note. This led to a court case in 1973, Honeywell versus Speary Rand, because Speary Rand, which had purchased Remington Rand, which had purchased Eckerd and Mockley Corporation, which brought the uh, IP from Eckerd and Mockley when they were working on ENIAC and other systems, they were granted the patent in 1964. So in 1967, Honeywell sued Speary Rand, and they got the judgment that invalidated the patent in 1973. Now, that's important. Officially, Eckerd and Mockley did not themselves invent the first automatic digital computer, but they derived from Dr. John Vincent at NASA. What a few people say here, but I think Herman Goldstein, who was one of the original developers of ENIAC, said a couple of very interesting notes. Atanasov contemplated storing the coefficients of an equation in capacitors located on the periphery of a cylinder. He apparently had a prototype of his machine working early in 1940. This machine was, it should be emphasized, probably the first use of vacuum tubes to do digital computation and was a special purpose machine. This machine never saw the light of day as a serious tool for computation since it was somewhat premature in its engineering conception and limited in its logical influence. The machine never saw the light of day as a serious tool for computation since it was somewhat premature in its engineering conception and limited in its logical one. Nonetheless, it must be viewed as a great pioneering effort. Perhaps its chief importance was to influence the thinking of another physicist who was much interested in the computational process, John W. Mockley. During the period of Atanasov's work on his linear equation solver, Mockley was at Ursinus College, a small school in the environs of, Pence, of Philadelphia. Somehow, he became aware of Atanasov's project and visited him for a week in 1941. During the visit, the two men apparently went into Atanasov's idea in considerable detail and the discussion greatly influenced Mockley and through him the entire history of digital computers. A fair note, I think. Once the patent dispute was settled, all sorts of things made, were made possible, and the computer could be actually put into general use and production without having to pay massive fees to the inventors. Eckerd and Mockley, though, weren't done. After a dispute with the Moore School, they'd done work on... Eckerd and Mockley followed up ENIAC with work on a project called EDVAC. Now, ENIAC wasn't even fully operational when they had started the design, but it used a number of very important architectural differences from ENIAC, and the biggest being it was a stored program machine, and it would incorporate a high-speed serial access memory. Big differences from ENIAC, which was required extensive rewiring and patch panels to make any sort of change to the program state. And this is built for the Ballistic Research Lab at the U.S. Army at Aberdeen Proving Grounds. And it was still done by the Moore School. The system was pretty impressive. The EDVAC had a magnetic tape reader, 
and recorder technically, that could do input and output. It had a control unit with an oscilloscope. It was internally synchronized. It had a timer, what they call it. And it had a dual memory unit that had two sets of 64 mercury acoustic delay lines. And delay lines, and again, I'll have a whole episode about it, are just think of it like this. You have a length of wire, and you can send a signal down. And you know how long that signal is going to be in that wire. So depending on how fast you can send that signal, depends on how much, how many bits you can store in that wire. Pretty simple. Now, EdVac could do about 1160 operations per second. And it wasn't exactly super fast. It could do floating point arithmetic, though. That's big. And this is a computer that had 5,000 vacuum tubes, about 12,000 diodes, and used a lot of power. Not as much as ENIAC. So you can already see this idea of narrowing size as innovation goes through. But the greatest innovation and the major importance of EdVac wasn't anything technological. It was the output of a work, technically a monograph, by John von Neumann called The First Draft of a Report on the EdVac. And he said that the main enhancement to the design was the stored program concept. And when he described it and wrote it up, it basically became known as the von Neumann architecture. And two lectures from now, I don't call these lectures, I guess, two episodes from now, we'll be talking about the von Neumann architecture and what it meant to the field of computing. Now, EDVAC was actually delivered to the Ballistics Research Lab in 1949, but it didn't work until 1951, and even then, only on really on a limited basis. By 1942, probably the middle of 1942, was working about seven hours a day, and eventually just went whole hog and became their really their workhorse by 1957. Now, the Ballistics Research Lab was a major computing user all the way up through probably today, honestly. But EDVAC ran until 1962, and it was replaced by a machine called Burlesque, which I'll probably mention a little bit about down the line because it's a it's a weird machine. It's neat. But when these first generation of machines were built, innovations would come along that would then be incorporated. So in this case, they had punch card I.O. in 1954. They had extra memory uh, in the form of magnetic drums and then a specific floating point unit in 1958. It's a long time to use a machine, but at the cost and the size of these machines, you really kind of had to. Eckerd and Mockley weren't done, though. Eckerd and Mockley left the Moore School in 1949, and they founded the Eckerd Mockley Computer Corporation. I've never really been 100%. I've seen a couple different things. I think it really came down to they had a design called the BINAC, the Binary Automatic Computer, and they wanted to found it as a company to be able to produce this computer. And EMCC was arguably the first computer company in the world. This is an important distinction, I think, to make. Because there were companies that were designed to make mechanical things that we might see as computers, and there were a couple of analog computing companies by this point. But no digital computer companies. And I don't believe any computer company calling itself a computer company. Binac was the first product of the Eckert-Mockley Computer Corporation. And it was the first stored program computer in the United States. It actually predated EdVac's working. came out, I believe, in 1949. Now, it's sometimes said to be the world's first commercial digital computer. Arguments are all over on that one. But it certainly does have a lot of superlatives you can attach to it. Supposedly, it was also, since it was somewhat limited in scope, it never really worked the way they had intended it to. But 
they sort of did some interesting things because of that. One, they knew that it wasn't a robust architecture. It had two independent CPUs, and it each had a 512-word acoustic memory delay line. And what happened is the CPUs would compare results to check for errors caused by hardware failures. When you develop an entire second CPU specifically to deal with hardware errors, you know your system is not robust. It was pretty fast. It went at about 4.25 megahertz. Um, it was okay. And it did do programs starting February 7th, 1949. And Northrop was the first to take a Binac. I've never been 100% sure if Binac received any larger scale acceptance, but they definitely had Binac. And I think it was the idea of Binac that was really the important thing. The fact that they built one is kind of secondary, honestly. One of the interesting things is Northrop wouldn't let uh, Eckerd and Mockley Corporation technicians touch the machine after they shipped it, which is interesting. And I think it's because there were security concerns. So they actually hired a just graduated electrical engineering student to be the one to fix it. And they stayed with it. This also meant that they had to have a manual. And since the computer was going to be out of the control of those who had built it, you had to document for in a way that the user could understand what the computer did and how you fix it. So while machines that were prior to it had documentations of what they were, Binac and all the computers after it had to have what they could do, how you can fix it, and what these things mean. And that's an important advance, honestly, as much as anything technical Binac did. Now, around this time, IBM released two machines, the IBM 603 and the IBM 604. The IBM 604 was developed by Ralph Palmer, Gerard Haddad, and Byron Phelps, and it was introduced in 1948. This is considered to be the first mass-produced electronic calculator. IBM was still doing the major research with the ASCC, the ISCC, all the SSEC, ASCC, all those things were happening in parallel. And this was really a calculator, not necessarily a computer. It wasn't stored program, for example. And you could have it read a punch card from a deck, do some calculations, but it was based on the wiring of the plug board. And then it would actually be able to punch results on the same card, which is kind of cool. And then you would have to have a separate machine to actually process the cards. So it was less that the 604 was a calculating system or a computer, but it, with the card reader and punch, it became a computer processing system. Two very important computers, though, came out in 1950. And they're related, but not the same. They're SIAC, the Standards Eastern Electronic Com or Standards Eastern Automatic Computer, and SWAC, the Standards Western Automatic Computer. They're both built by the U.S. Bureau of Statistics. They were both one-offs. The SIAC was probably the more robust of the two. If you compare the two, it's really a fascinating look. Because SIAC had a much larger memory. It was twice as large. But they both operated pretty substantially. But they also had very important tie-ons. They also didn't last very long. They were only around for five or six years. Well, SIAC was around for five or six years. I think they also lasted a fair amount of time from 1950 up through about 1964. And SIAC was based on the design of EDVAC. And I believe very specifically on the draft report on EDVAC written by John von Neumann. 
Many people consider it to be the first fully functional stored program electronic computer in the U.S. Hard to say. And it did lead to the SIAC, and particularly led to a follow-on called the DISIAC, or DICIAC, uh, parts of which still exist today at the Computer History Museum. But SIAC used 747 vacuum tubes, which is a small number considering, but it was eventually about doubled. It had diodes, and it had diode transistor logic. But the important thing, other than the delay lines storing 512 bits of memory, or words of memory, with each word being 45 bits in size, so it's taking chunks and working them fast. But it only had 11 types of instructions. And that's important. This is, in essence, a risk machine. It's a reduced instruction set. Maybe all were at that time, though. And occasionally, you could actually access it remotely using a teletype. Not the first. We talked about the work of Stibitz, but it does show something that I think is important. The idea of computers always wanting to be available outside of the just room that they're in. And SIAC did some really important stuff. It did a city traffic animation to show a simulation of how traffic moved around. It did some some meteorology work and work particularly on optical lenses. That's actually incredibly intense calculations that are necessary. It also did some Los Alamos work, but most computers at that time did. But I think the most important thing it did was the first digital imaging by Russell A. Kirsch. And he actually took a picture of his son and using a photo sensor, actually digitized it and stored it in the computer and then printed it from there. And it's tiny. It's like six or seven centimeters, something like that. SWAC, on the other hand, was different. About the same time, but it was smaller scale. And it was put together very quickly. And basically, the Western edition of the uh, National Bureau of Standards wanted to get a machine to sort of hold them over until they could get bigger machines, like the RADAC, which would come from Raytheon not too long, much later. And... This is sort of thrown together, but that happens. I mean, what are you going to do? But what's funny is that when it was completed, it was the fastest computer in the world. And it held that thing for more than a year. What's really interesting to me, though, there are two things. One is that the work it did was huge when you sort of look at it in the bigger picture. While being the first to do a computer animation or digital imaging, we had Raphael Robinson in January 1952... Discovering five Marcin primes, the largest prime numbers known at the time. But then it did the analysis of the structure of vitamin B12 done by Dorothy Hodgkin. And she got the Nobel Prize for that. And this was done on SWAC. The other thing that's interesting is who helped design it. A gentleman by the name of Harry Husky. And Husky was one of the key figures in the history of computing for a number of reasons. He worked with Turing, and I discovered one day a, I guess you'd call it a monograph, monogram, one of those things, that described a computer, an 8-bit machine, that was done while he was in England. And we don't know anything about it. We're trying, we've been trying to figure out for years, but we never did, not before I got laid off at least. We started to see something very interesting happen. We started to see more and more companies coming into the computing space. You had the ERA-1101, which was later the UNIVAC-1101, and it was initially designed about 1950, and the initial model was called the Atlas, which was the first stored program computer moved from its site of manufacture and successfully installed in a distant site. That's a very niche <laughs> superlative, I guess. But it was used in code breaking, which makes sense because the folks who designed it and founded ERA had worked as code breakers. And Atlas was sort of a class of machines and 
it used drum memory for the main memory and featured a very simple central processing unit. The last machine I'm going to talk about today, we mentioned earlier, was Whirlwind. And one of the reasons why Whirlwind is sort of a, a, stop, a good stopping point is, one, chronologically, you had the rise of the earliest commercial computers that sort of succeeded. You had Univac, you had the Leo One, and we'll be going into that very soon, uh, probably three more episodes. But Whirlwind was majorly important because it was one of those, again, machines that just continually evolved. And it used about 5,000 vacuum tubes. And it was the basis for two, well, really three important machines. It was the basis for the Sage system, and it was the basis for the TX0, which itself was the basis for the PDP-1. But it kept changing. And in particular, as new memory systems were developed, they would be incorporated in, particularly the one that was invented for it, core memory. It used electrostatic tubes for its initial memory, and it went through a couple other, I believe it also had a drum memory at one point. Not 100% sure on that, but I believe it did. It may have been as a secondary storage, or even just, honestly, a test. But I know we had a piece that said, whirlwind drum memory. What are you going to do? This period of computing history is really fascinating because, one, it was largely university. Two, the companies that were becoming involved were also very closely tied to universities, like Eckerd and Mockley coming out of the Moore School. The government was still the prime mover, though, and that would be true for a while. But still, you always had a reason to, or a method at least, to apply it to a governmental project, usually defense, but sometimes things like standards. These machines form the basis of what will be the explosion in the early 1950s of computer corporations, companies that had been around like Honeywell, Burroughs, General Electric, companies that were established that were then moving into the space. At the same time that all this was happening, though, and even a little before, England was having a major, major push to creating what would be some of the most important computers in the history of computing. And that'll be our next episode. And after that, it's about the IAS machines. And then after that, it's probably going to be memory technologies, but the order of these could always change. Thanks for listening to Computer History. I'm Chris Garcia. 